Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. It's the first week of March, and although we're still in lockdown, the temperatures are rising, the sun is spending longer in the sky, and we begin, as always, by checking on the sailors of the whaler Swan of Hull trapped in the ice off the west coast of Greenland in the spring of 1837. They know there is now a little hope, inspired rather wonderfully by them drifting to within sight of an island called Disco. The readings come from a transcription of the Swan's logbook made specially for the podcast. The original and very splendid document is held at the Caird Library at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. Sunday, 5th of March. Strong gales from the northeast the whole of the day. At 11pm our flow broke on all sides of us, but thank God our ship remained still in the middle of a long, smooth body of water. The darkness of night prevents our seeing the bergs, which are doubtless the cause of it, but we fear they are not far off. A 360-gallon shake, number 11, cut up this day for fuel. Thermometer 14 degrees below zero. Monday, 6th of March. Strong breezes with thick weather. Middle and latter part, light variable winds. A 217-gallon shake cut up for fuel, number 18. During the last night, we have drifted through a reef of bergs, but we are now a few miles to the southward of them, wonderfully preserved. The land has not been seen these last few days, though it has been tolerably clear. Thermometer 15 degrees below zero. Thursday, 9th of March. Strong breeze is the forepart of this day, with fine, clear weather. The island of Disco lie in a beam of us about 30 miles distant. Our prospect of relief from this desolate place being better than we expected a month ago. The week's allowance of bread this day was increased to four pounds, being an additional half pound since the 14th of December last. A 260-gallon cask, number 22, cut up for firewood this day. Thermometer 16 degrees below zero. Latitude 69 degrees by 50 north. Hello everyone, I now have to drag you back from the frozen north to transport you to the balmy climes of the Marshall Islands in the middle of the Pacific. I'm speaking today with the excellent John Hooth about the wave pilots of the South Pacific. Yes, you heard that right. These are people who use traditional understanding of the shifting pattern of the waves that they come across to navigate between islands. The sea itself 
tells them where they are going. It's a wonderful chapter in the history of navigation, and no one knows more about it than John. John Huth is the Donner Professor of Science at Harvard, and he works mainly in the field of experimental particle physics. He is, in fact, a member of the international team that discovered the Higgs boson particle. He has also, however, written a rather wonderful book, The Lost Art of Finding Our Way, in which he contends that even the most confused of us can improve our navigational understanding by paying closer attention to the world around us. Long before GPS, Google Earth and global transit, humans travelled vast distances using only environmental clues and simple instruments. And the question John wants an answer to is this. What is lost when modern technology substitutes for our innate capacity to find our way? We're exploring some of these themes today, talking about the wave pilots of the Marshall Islands. They're in a really interesting area of ocean. The Marshall Islands are 70 square miles of land in total, comprising five different islands and 29 atolls, but 870 different reef systems scattered over 750,000 square miles of the central Pacific. These islands, they're, they're rings of coral islets that grew up around the rims of underwater volcanoes millions of years ago and now encircle gentle lagoons. They're sort of dots or donuts, I suppose, that make up two parallel north-south chains separated from their nearest neighbours by, on average, 100 miles. Now, swells generated by distant storms travel thousands of miles to these low-lying spits of sand. And when they hit, part of their energy is reflected back out to sea in arcs, um, a bit like sound waves emanating from a speaker. While another part curls around the atoll or island and creates a, a type of confused chop. Wave pilots read these patterns by both feel and sight, to work out where they are. The way that a particle physicist became involved in a project to study this is quite some story, and I hope you enjoy it. Here's John. Hi, John. Thanks so much for talking to us. It's a pleasure, Sam. So tell me about how you became interested first in, in navigation and the, the ways that people find their way around the world. Well, I'd always been interested in maps and, and that sort of thing um, as a kid, but um, what really propelled me was, was an accident. Um, and uh, it happened actually about a half a mile from where I am at the moment. Um, I'd um, taken up sea kayaking, uh, mostly to fish. And um, one summer in 2003, I was up on an island off the coast of Maine and I rented a uh, sea kayak from somebody there and uh, I'd been there the year before so I kind of knew the area at least mentally I had a mental map of the area and uh, I decided to paddle around the island that I was staying on and as I was crossing a large embayment about two miles across uh, all of a sudden a very thick fog descended and I hadn't thought about that as a possibility but uh, there was nothing but open ocean to the south of me, and I realized that if I couldn't orient myself, I might very well get lost out to sea. So I had to very quickly think about what I was seeing or, and feeling as the fog was descending. So the, there was a wind out of the southeast, so I figured, well, that probably would keep up and make a good compass. Um, there was a swell running out of the south, and so I said, okay, that's another sign. 
And then I could hear waves crashing on a beach to the northeast. And um, I knew that I would sort of see that go kind of from the 10 o'clock position to maybe the 8 o'clock position as I was moving. And there were some shallows where waves crashed in opposite directions about a mile away. So I knew if I kept my orientation and paddled for about 20 minutes, I'd get there. Um, so in fact, I did, and I was relieved to see the waves crashing in opposite directions, and I turned north, and um, I saw then lobster buoys. The lobster, the fishermen were dropping their, their, their lobster pots only so close to land because when the tide went out, you know, they didn't want to have them high and dry. So that line of demarcation gave me another orientation. And so it was just all this information that all of a sudden was kind of rolling into me in the, in the fog. It was kind of like, you know, you turn off the site and you key in on other pieces of information. Well, I made it back fine, um, although I realized I should have been wearing a wetsuit because the water temperature was cold. In any case, I got one, and I went back to my house in Cape Cod, which is where I'm sitting right now. And um, then... Uh, Columbus Day weekend, which we're now, at least some of us are calling Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, in October 2003, I went out for a paddle. Um, the water was wet, so I had my cold, I had my wetsuit on. And um, just out of reflex, I noticed which way the wind was blowing. And it was a clear, bright, sunny day. And um, after half an hour, thick fog rolled in. And um, you know, it was like second nature to me. I was using the wind as a natural compass. And if I ever got out of sight of land, I could just turn north and hit the coastline and follow the coastline. So I made it back without a problem, um, enjoyed myself even. And then um, took a shower, had dinner, all that good stuff. And then the next day I went out paddling and the harbor master came up to me in his boat and asked me if I saw two young women kayaking. And I said, well, no. And then I later learned that um, about almost exactly the moment I launched my kayak and only about a half a mile down the beach, two young women had um, launched their kayaks and gone out uh, into Nantucket Sound and uh, evidently got lost in the fog, same fog I was paddling in. And uh, at that moment, there was a massive search and rescue going on for them. And um, the next day, they found the body of one of the young women and never found the body of the other. And uh, some weeks later, I was walking down the beach, and at the site where they launched their kayaks, there was a memorial to the young woman whose body wasn't found, and um, her picture was on a little placard, and a saying said, no one is lost to God. And this was really disturbing um, for me. And I guess, you know, if you hear about a fatality or something like that, um, you know, it's sad, but you turn the page in the newspaper and you go on to something else. But because I was doing the exact same thing at the exact same time in the same conditions, um, I had a real sense of survivor's guilt. Like, why, why me and not them? Although in the back of my mind, it was that I paid attention to the wind direction. And that was really the difference. So kind of to work off the survivor's guilt, and this wasn't a conscious decision, but I just became obsessed with wayfinding with natural signs. And, and I decided to um, improve on those skills. So I memorized the positions of major stars in the sky and came up with my own system for navigating using without instruments, using stars in the sky and the sun and this sort of thing. Wow, it's, it's some story. I think we should say here that you're, you're not um, 
by your employment a historian or a professional navigator, are you? This is something that you you adopted. What, what do you do in your day to day job? <laughs> yeah, my my day job is I'm an experimental particle physicist. So, um, <laughs> you know, after this discussion, I'm going to return to that and talk about electronics and colliding protons together at high energies and making new forms of matter. Um, so that's so it, it was a significant retraining to learn learn about um, the natural forms of navigation. But um, I, I think there's, a, there's an important lesson there and that, that um, you know, it's valuable. It's a valuable skill for everyone to do. And you went on to write a book, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. It. Uh, I started teaching it. Um, I started to see the world in a different way, and I thought everybody around me was sleepwalkers, although I was once a sleepwalker. And I thought, you know, if I could kind of look at the world in this different way, maybe it could be taught. So I started teaching it first as a freshman seminar, and then as a course, but there's no real text for this. So I developed a text called The Lost Art of Finding Our Way, um, which um, serves both as a text and a lot of other people outside of Reddit and... Um, um, they like it because it's kind of a unique perspective that I don't think people have even thought about, really. Yeah, and there are so many neat tricks to navigation and sort of sim- simple things you can do to help you find your way. It's something I came across when I, I had to do a TV show and I, I was in charge of navigating but at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and I knew how to use a sextant and I got to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, which was a mile deep, and realised I couldn't see the horizon. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> Serious problem. Really, quite a massive problem. Um, and also, you've got, you know, the river moving at uncertain speeds. Um, it was incredibly difficult and utterly bewildering, even if, you know, you were a skilled navigator to actually work out where you were at sea. But in this this alien environment, very difficult indeed. And I did a bit of work. And one of the, the, the little tricks I loved the most was walking in woodland when you just look at which side of the tree has got moss on, and that will help you understand which is the side in the shade. And ever since then, I've, I've loved this as well. And I'd encourage everyone listening um, to, to try and find out a little bit about navigating. Um, what are your favorite tricks that you came across? Well, the moss in the tree thing is not always reliable. Um, <laughs> so you have to be, you have to be a, little, a little careful about that um, because it depends on you know, the shade and that sort of thing. But um, I, use, I use shadows a lot. Um, and uh, the shadows, basically, you can think of like every telephone pole or power pole or tree as um, kind of a natural sundial. And uh, if, you, if you think in those terms and you start to observe it, you know, the shadows just tell you a huge amount. You have to know the time of day, of course, but there's also the height of the sun and the sky and the combination of the height of the sun and the sky and the position of the shadow can um, act like a natural sundial. And um, I find over time, by observing it, you can almost build in this intuition about, you know, where's northeast, south, and west, um, just by observing shadows. So that that's my favorite go-to. Of course, you can say, what do you do on a cloudy day? And then <laughs> I fall back on wind directions and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. So how did you get interested in, um, in wave navigation, this extraordinary project that you became involved in? So let's see. So I, in writing the book, um, I did include something about um, wave navigation because I knew of it. And... Um, I sent the book to a uh, anthropologist to make sure I had the facts right, mainly about Pacific Island culture, and um, uh, because most of it was stuff I'd read. And um, he was very gracious, and it turned out I didn't make too many mistakes. But then he said, "You, you probably want to talk to this other guy, Joe Gens." And Joe is a professor now at the University of Hawaii, 
and he did his dissertation on wave navigation in the Marshall Islands, which is a cluster of islands close to the equator in the Central Pacific. And um, so we went through a lot of detail on that. I went out there, and um, we had a crew of Joe, somebody, uh, a Marshall Islander who specializes in building um, uh, canoes, outrigger canoes, and then a numerical special specialist in numerical simulation of waves. And we did a non-instrument voyage between two atolls and um, also learned from um, a navigator who learned from his grandfather and all this information that had get, gotten passed down. And it was really a question of sort of taking the, the physicist toolkit, if you like, and then applying it to this cultural tradition of navigation using waves. And um, to my knowledge, it was kind of a first. And it was actually very enjoyable. And in fact, tomorrow I have a meeting with um, some of these people to do a follow-up um, expedition. You might find me tagging along. It all sounds too much fun. Um, and I love this interdisciplinary aspect of it, you know, bringing the, the, the mind of a physician to a, to a problem. Did that really kind of feel like it benefited you? I think so, because we found, I found many new things. Um, one of the things that, that they talk about is, is you don't, it's not seeing the waves, it's feeling the waves. That is to say, feeling the motion of the vessel. And I didn't really understand that until I started looking in detail on the physics of ocean waves. And it turns out that the longer period waves, you know, the time between the crests, the longer that is, the more that carries information about land nearby. But the short stuff, the chop, the windblown chop doesn't. And so the, the motion of the vessel kind of averages out the windblown chop and you're left with the real information in the motion of the vessel. And so when I was out there in the middle of the night um, between two atolls, I could feel the motion of the waves acting on the boat and um, could start to understand why they developed that. So here was something that started out as an equation that I kind of knew about and vaguely understood the tradition. But then in the middle of the night sitting on the vessel, I understood put two and two together and really understood why they felt the motion of the vessel. So that's one example. So Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In, in simple terms, what is the tradition? How does this work? Well, so... I suppose those are two different questions, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Let's do the first one first. What, so, what, it, what, what is the tradition? Well, so basically, um, waves will interact with land in some way. Um, ocean waves can get extinguished by land, so you can be kind of in the wave shadow. Um, they'll reflect off of the coastline, so you can see the reflections off the coastline, or rather, feel the reflections off a coastline. Um, and then they'll, they'll sometimes they'll bend around islands as well and kind of create a, a crossing pattern of waves that are crossing in, in the um, wake of the island, if you like. And so the Marshall Islanders keyed in on this and um, developed a rather elaborate tradition uh, and language that was very specific to using these waves to find their way from one place to another. And, I mean, is the answer to the question, how does it work? Is, it, is that different to the way that they understand it in their tradition? Well, that's the, that's the interesting challenge because you, you deal with um, different words or terms that they use for different wave patterns. And then it's a challenge to get them to explain it because they don't quite explain it in terms that a scientist might understand or explain it to another person in details. So sometimes you get, there it is. And it's like, where what is, you know, I don't understand. So in particular, one that was, was rather interesting to me was um, Joe, the anthropologist I mentioned, he was working with the Captain Corrent, who was this, um, was taught wave navigation by his grandfather. And uh, they were looking at reflections. And um, I got a little video from Joe about Corrent pointing at it. And Corrent was basically saying, you know, in Marshallese, there's the reflection. See it? There's a reflection. And Joe couldn't see it. And an oceanographer couldn't see it. And they had a wave buoy that was supposedly out there to measure it. And the wave buoy couldn't register it. And being a sea kayaker, I, I kind of realized what was going on was that the reflected wave was smaller than the incoming wave because you lost some of the energy on the coastline. And it got broken up into little wavelets. And so once you knew what to look for, you know, I was able to explain this to Joe. And I saw it. So I went back to the video and I said to Joe, Hey, you see what's happening is the reflected wave is smaller and it's broken up into little wavelets. And you see, that's what he's pointing at. And Joe said, Oh yeah, now I see. And, and so it's the difference between somebody saying, there it is, there it is. And you're like, there, there, what is, and then being able to sort of understand actually what it is in detail and say it's these little wavelets and it's smaller and blah, 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 blah. And um, so I was almost acting kind of like an interpreter between kind of their culture and being able to explain it to somebody else. Um, so that wow. was kind of interesting. An amazing position to find yourself in. Yeah. And when you did the, the trip, did it, did it work? Was it, was it accurate? Did, they, did the, um, the, 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 the traditional navigation techniques put you roughly where you expected to be? It was actually remarkable. Um, so Alison Keelan was the name of the, the navigator. He was the, um, he navigated the outrigger canoe between the two atolls and we followed in a chase boat. Um, just to be safe, we had um, a VHF transceiver so we could communicate with him. 
And so at three in the morning, he liked to, he liked to sail at night because he gets his eyes, he says his eyes get fooled and he likes to feel the motion of the vessel. So that's kind of tracks with what I understand. Mm -hmm. And, um, about three in the morning, as we were sort of off of one of the atolls, we called him up on the VHF and said, where do you think you are? And he said, oh, I think I'm about 12 miles to the southeast of the southeast corner of our, which is the atoll we were sailing to. And he was dead on accurate. I mean, it was unbelievable how, how precise he was. And, uh, you know, on the return voyage, the wind kind of dropped out and we were getting swept off course by a current and he knew that. I mean, he just, he just seemed to know everything that was going on. And I was just there kind of dutifully recording the voyage. And I was, you know, yes, there's a current. Yes, <laughs> we are where we are. Yes. You know, everything, everything he was saying was, was spot on, but I had like a little GPS because I had to record this and record the wind and, you know, sort of just about everything to sort of figure out what was going on. But he, he had everything nailed. It was crazy. That's extraordinary. I mean, there's a there's a, a material culture to this as well. They have these extraordinary wave navigation maps which were built at yeah. the time. Tell me a little bit about those. Yeah, those are called stick charts generically. And um, they can be as simple as um, being effectively like a map that shows you where all the atolls are located. But they can also depict um, the waves that um, waves can interact with land and also currents close to land as well. And um, so there's there's a lot of information that's used. So they're kind of teaching aids in a sense. So you look at these stick charts on Can land. Can you describe one? Yeah, so basically they're sticks that are tied together uh, by strings, sometimes hibiscus threads, typically. Um, and um, they have arcs on them for depicting waves. So arc waves are always depicted as arcs and directions of passages or straight lines. And um, some of them sort of have a twofold symmetry, so they look like a cross with some arcs in them. Some of them have a one-fold symmetry, so there's all like a line with arcs on them. And then some of them are some mixture that has places that have shells that are tied to the lattice of sticks, and the shells represent islands or atolls as well. So it's 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 really a mixture of waves plus islands that are all represented by these sticks tied together. Um, and they're functional and beautiful as well, aren't they? Some of them are objects to be looked at as well as to be used, I suspect. Oh yeah, no, they're <laughs> they're they're in museums across the world. So if you just Google up stick charts or something like that, you'll be treated to a page full of these, and and they're they're <laughs> quite amazing looking. Yeah. So, what do you reckon the next project is? What what what's the next step in research? Trying to understand what's going on here. Uh, you mean wave piloting? Well, yeah. I'm. Actually, tomorrow I'm having a, a conference with, with these people. Um, I, from what we got from the last voyage, um, there seemed to be an important feature. There's something called Drillib, which actually would be spelled D-I-L-E-P, so you would think it would be pronounced Dilep, but this is just the problem of translating you know, things from the, the native language. And it's, it's supposedly a path of disturbed water that connects... Um, pairs of islands. And when we sailed, we sailed on a path, especially our return voyage, that seemed to be sailing, I guess, parallel to the wave crests the entire time. And we figured out what was going on by using numerical wave simulations. But then there was a much simpler way of understanding what was going on by 
how the waves were interacting and spreading out with the atolls. So this is kind of the hypothesis that this is the way to sail up and down the chains of the islands. So what we want to do is go back and test that. And another thing I want to do is try to instrument the um, canoes with inertial sensors so we can basically record um, what the body is feeling. Um, and then, you know, sort of correlate that with the sensation. So I, I could feel the motion of the vessel myself of rocking back and forth and pitching up and down. Um, but now I'd like to record that and sort of compare my own sensations or the sensations of the navigator to what we're recording with this instrument. Well, it sounds absolutely extraordinary. I, th I think it's exactly entirely appropriate that a scientist is doing this rather than a historian. I think I'd be I'd be wholly lost. But um, we look sounds like we might be able to find some really new, interesting information out. We'll have to um, keep us informed. We'll come back and find out how's it how it's going on. Sure. Um, tell us about your book. What's the title of your book? If anyone uh, wants to find out more, yeah, it's called uh, "The Lost Art of Finding Our Way," um, and. Um, it was actually great fun to write because I had to dig up a lot of stories of, you know, mistakes and people getting lost and um, doing research. As it turns out, the way people get lost and get unlost is, is rather fascinating because um, it almost mirrors the way people live their lives. Um, so, you know, people could, you know, some people, they, they go on a random walk, um, you know, they sort of walk around randomly. And so, you, you know, you can kind of know people that do that. They pick up something and do something else. The other people that try to get unlost, they go in a straight line. So they, they've been told that if they just go in a straight line soon enough, you know, at some point they're going to cross a road or a river or something like that. And we all know individuals that, you know, sort of, you know, blindly pursue, you know, one vocation over their entire lives. And then Another another strategy is called route sampling, where you actually follow a route for some distance, but then maybe you go back to your starting point and follow another route. Um, so, you know, some people reset their midlife, you know, aims and that sort of thing. So I, uh, another thing is to get onto a high promontory and kind of survey what's going around. And so I found that the behavior of lost persons is, is almost as like a metaphor for personality types in some ways. And this is one of the amazing things that I found in writing the book. I mean, researching it was just so much fun getting all these stories. So, yeah. Yeah. And so, so much on the edge as well. I think, you know, the, the terror of getting lost, it's, um, it, it really is a, a fascinating kind of moment in people's lives, whether you have the security of knowing where you are and the terror of being lost. How much admiration do you have for the early navigators? Oh, incredible. <laughs> I mean, um, and I've met, I've met some people who, um, navigate for the Polynesian Voyaging Society. So this was a group, is a group in Hawaii that wanted to prove willful navigation and sailing across the vast expanses of the Pacific and develop this double-hold canoe called the Hokulea. And they, they employed first a, um, uh, a native to um, an island called Satoal in the Federated Republic of Micronesia as their first um, navigator, but he taught somebody named Nenoa Thompson, who is the now the president, and then Nenoa then taught other navigators. And I, I met some of these um, navigators who would do, for example, the Hawaii to Tahiti 
run and they they said that they were terrified because they were out there without instruments they knew kind of what to look for but they weren't sure it was going to work um but then sure enough it did work and so there is this sort of terror the first time out where it's like is this going to work i don't know <laughs> and uh, yeah. and then it does so yeah i've always been fascinated by the way that the sea uh, has different landscape seascapes within it there are some which there are plenty of um where enormous waves are coming. They have some areas where, um, like the doldrums, where it's very still, where some which are covered in weed. Um, and the sea is not just the sea. It, it, it is fundamentally physically different in locations, um, you know, within within one ocean. I've, I find that extraordinary. Yeah, no, it's definitely true. And, and you know, the sea has a personality. It has to be respected. And you have to kind of know, you know, where to where to piece these things together. Like you say, the doldrums or quite calm or you could be off the coast of South Africa and end up with incredibly scary waves because you have a very strong current going against the wind down there. Um, so those are just a few examples. Yeah. Oh, for 10 minutes with Ferdinand Magellan after a nice meal. <laughs> <laughs> one, one interesting story I found about the, um, circ- the first circumnavigation was that, you know, you, you basically, if you count the days, right, you know, just sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset. If you sail around the world, depending on which direction you go, you either gain or you lose a day if you take it off of the calendar, right? You think about it, it's true, but you know, you didn't think about it. And so, and so the, the, the survivors of the Magellan voyage, when they finally got back to, you know, quote unquote, civilization, they found that they were off by a day and <laughs> they were celebrating wow. the Sabbath on the wrong day. And um, they didn't think about it, but but that was this this weird thing that they just hadn't thought about, and all of a sudden, yeah, you sail one way around the world or the other way, you gain or you lose a day. It must have been utterly bewildering. <laughs> they've actually managed to survive, but they've literally lost twenty four hours. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, extraordinary. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. Um, okay. I very much hope you'll come back and, and let us know how how things are progressing. Yep. fascinating stuff. Pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening, as always. Now, how can you help? Well, you really can help. What you can do is you can go on to iTunes and you can leave a review of the podcast. Every big, good review does make a huge difference. Otherwise, please find the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk and please become a member. Um, Your subscription fee will go towards preserving the maritime past and helping us to publish the most important maritime history. And also, please do get in touch with us on social media, either the Society for Nautical Research or the Mariner's Mirror podcast. You can join either one or you can find both and join both. That would be wonderful. And do please get in touch and let us know if you're enjoying it. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 